and my heart's blessed. I hope yours is too. Uh, thanks for bringing up that this is not a traditional Christmas series, and I don't intend on having a cr- traditional Christmas message uh, as we approach that later in the month. And um, I hope that doesn't offend anyone. If you'd like a traditional message, we did something more traditional last year. And so this is a great opportunity to remind you that all of our sermons are recorded and published on a podcast that's accessible through our church website. And so if you'd like to listen to a more traditional Christmas message or even a Christmas series, you are more than welcome to get online and listen to last year's message because it was more traditional. Uh, It's really kind of impossible to compare the difficulty that comes in sermon preparation at the Christmas season and at Easter with any other time of year. The, The reality that I'm faced with is that the themes of Christmas are familiar to most people. Whether they're churched or unchurched, people seem to be pretty familiar with those themes and even their implications and their meaning. The fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies is accomplished through the birth of the Messiah. The incredible incarnation of our Savior. Incarnation, it's a word that literally means to take on flesh. If you're familiar with a Latin language like Spanish or French, uh, the word for meat is carne in Spanish. Incarnation is literally to take on meat or to take on flesh. And so God takes on flesh through the incarnation and Jesus' birth. All of this done so that he can become a substitute on our behalf. And this is why the prophecies of the Gospels refer to Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, because he does come with us. It's becoming less and less conventional, though, to look at Christmas as the fulfillment of some of God's greatest promises for his people. In fact, the liturgical tradition uh, for the Advent season of the year is to follow the pattern of hope, faith, peace, and joy, and to focus on these themes. And through this non-traditional series, I in no way want to undermine or trivialize the significance of these words and their meaning. Instead, I want to look through Christmas through the lens of the whole Bible. I don't want to limit ourselves to Luke chapter 2. Instead, I want to encompass the whole story that is being told between Genesis and Revelation. The Bible from beginning to end is one story that God has divinely inspired and revealed to man so that we can know him. It has a purpose. It wasn't written to be confusing. It wasn't even written to be convoluted. In fact, the story that is being told is pretty simple. Sometimes we confuse the complex mechanisms and the different elements that are at play in the Bible with the nature of the Bible itself. But when we really look at it, it is a simple story unfolding before us. Christmas, or the event that we celebrate during Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is a spectacular point in that one big story. A moment ago, I made reference to the liturgical focuses of Advent, the first one being hope. I wonder, do you know how hope plays into Christmas? It's one of the big words. It's one of the big themes. 
But if I were to ask you this morning, do you know how hope plays into Christmas? Would you be able to answer that question? I guess to understand that, we first have to understand what hope is, right? Hope is the assurance of expectation that something is coming in the future. Today, I hope for my ultimate redemption, the day when my salvation will be made perfectly complete when I am glorified with Christ in heaven. Today, I hope for the redemption of the world through the power of Christ's blood. Hope is always looking forward. We misuse hope when we talk about it as something that is not certain. Oftentimes in today's language, when we use the word hope, the way that we use it is a wishful thinking. Well, I hope that I haven't offended you. And I really don't know the answer. That's how I used it at the beginning of my introduction, right? That's not the biblical understanding of the word. When I use the word hope in regards to the Bible, I'm talking about something that I have certain expectations of coming to fruition. There is no doubt. This is kind of confusing. How does this relate to Christmas when we're celebrating something that has taken, pe- taken place in the past? How in the world are we talking about hope when we're celebrating something that's already taken place? The answer is the fulfillment of Christmas. Or in other words, all of the promises that God has laid out since the beginning of this one big story point to a day that God will be with us and that we will call Him Emmanuel. It is an amazing prospect to consider the promises that God has already fulfilled. And while some of those promises linger, like the day that I will be perfectly saved, I have confidence in that promise that is in the future because I can look back at a God who is faithful to answer every promise He's ever given us. Another way to say that would be that my assurance of what is yet to come is based on the veracity of what has already taken place. Christmas, then, is the fulfillment of what God has promised to do. It's a reminder for us to have assurance and confidence in what is yet to come. Well, let's look then at our text this morning. The story of Christmas really begins all the way at the beginning. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me and prepare to read together from our text this morning, which will come from Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 14 and 15, but our focus will only be on verse 15. Before we do that, as you're opening your Bibles, let's take a moment to pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word and the revelation that it is to us. God, I know that nobody wakes up and seeks after you and discovers you. I know, because you've made it plain, that you are pursuing 
after us and revealing yourself to us to make it possible for us to know you. God, I'm thankful for your word and the way in which you do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to see your story as one big story unfolding from the beginning of time, that you would help us to understand these things, their implications, and God, I pray that you would help us to apply them to our lives, that we would not hear your word or your truth preached and leave unchanged. To do that, God, I know that we need humble hearts that are soft and ready for you to impact and reach. And God, I pray that you would help us this morning to have soft hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we would rely on you for our understanding. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray and ask all of this. Amen. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and cursed above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A short passage this morning but it's really something incredible. This morning, I'm going to remind you that Genesis 3.15 is pointing to the, well, to the day of Christmas that must, must, must come that necessi- necessitates Calvary, the day that Christ died. To understand what's going on here, we first have to understand a little bit about what's immediately taken place right before this. So Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are really the parallel accounts of God creating. Chapter 1 focuses on the whole of creation, whereas chapter 2 looks from the perspective of God creating man and woman. Genesis 2.16, God gives man and woman a command. He says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. We find in this command, which is a prohibition that God is protecting His creation from themselves, God did not create us to be perfect beings, but He blessed us with innocence. That innocence protects us from culpability of our imperfection. This is the case with all of God's prohibitions. They exist not to keep us from enjoying ourselves or having fun, but they exist to protect us. He doesn't try to keep us from doing things that would benefit us, but in fact, to keep us safe from our own harm. What's transpired at the beginning of the chapter uh, that we're looking at in chapter 3 is that this imperfect nature inside of man and woman has caused them to disobey God's command and take and eat from the tree of good and evil. No longer sheltered in innocence, but endowed with an awareness of what is right and wrong, man finds himself ashamed of his nakedness and hides from God. God, confronting man's rebellion, begins to lay out a series of curses and consequences that would affect all of us, even us sitting here today. If I might pause here for a moment, 
to address something that I find tremendously interesting. Maybe just because I think this is the best time to pause because it doesn't really fit anywhere else into the sermon. There's a temptation when reading the Bible and understanding this battle between right and wrong or this conflict that's taking place between the fallen serpent and God, the fallenness of man, to regard this as some sort of a chess match of good and evil. That God makes a move and then Satan makes a move and then God responds with another move. And that, you know, God knows what's going on better and so he's a better chess player and so he wins in the end. That's not the case, though. The God of the Bible that we read about is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's completely in control of every situation. In fact, we even have a biblical understanding that even what Satan does is according to God's will. It's in disobedience to God's will, but it happens because God still allows it to happen. And so I want to be clear that this isn't some sort of a chess match and Satan has somehow sacked a pawn or something else has gone on. There's no exchange of pieces taking place here. Rather, the fallenness of man happened because God allowed it to happen. And this is something incredible. Because there's something incredible at work here. God doesn't want us to remain perfectly innocent, but He wants us to have an awareness of good and evil. He hasn't made us perfect. And so that awareness leaves us culpable. Since the beginning, He's had a plan to rectify these two things. To redeem us. The story of Christmas that we're looking forward to, this redemption that we get to celebrate at Christmas time, everything that we're excited about and celebrating is based on the fact that we've finally been redeemed. That we can finally look back and say, God had a plan from the beginning. Our hope in the future as things look unsure and we can't predict what's going to take place tomorrow and everything else, we can still rest in the assurance that God is in control of all things. There's no surprising Him. Anyways, I felt that this was the time to pause and marvel at that. What we see in the verses we're focusing on this morning is the curses and the consequences that God is laying out, actually laying the foundation for our own redemption. So let's move into understanding what's taking place. I think the first question we have to ask is, who in the world are we talking about? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Who's speaking? Obviously, verse 14 makes this an easy question to answer. The Lord God said. This is God speaking. All right. One milestone hit. Who is he speaking to? Well, verse 14 also makes this clear. To the serpent. This is easy. We're going to fly through this this morning. So God is speaking to the serpent. Got it. kind of strange to think that God might be speaking to an animal. 
I understand that in Eden, animals were also free from the burden that they are uh, afflicted with in this world. While there's sickness and decay and all of that exists as a consequence of sin entering the world for the first time, the animals in the garden would have been free from this. There would have been no sickness. They would have been perfect animals. No disease, no decay. I don't think that they were so extraordinarily different, though, that they spoke. So the serpent is something else. The animals that God had created in the garden, different than we see today in that they were unmarred and that they didn't have these consequences, but they probably didn't speak. Fortunately, other scriptures identify clearly that the serpent is identified as Satan. The Apostle John in Revelation 12, 19 and Revelation 20, verse 2 makes that clear. And then again, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven three clearly identifies the serpent as Satan. And so there should be no question here. We can say that this is God speaking to the serpent, and we can just as easily say this is God speaking to Satan. So, who is Satan? Once an archangel, um, as He held a a high position in God's inner court, would would be one way to say it. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed by somebody, but it hurts a lot more when you've been betrayed by somebody who's close to you than when you've been betrayed by somebody who's not so close to you. He was an archangel in God's court. Ezekiel describes him this way. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and Perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. And you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Satan at this point, when we meet him in the garden, is no longer a guardian cherub. Instead, he's fallen from that position because unrighteousness has been found in him. He revolted. The prophet Isaiah gives us this description of Satan's motivations for revolting or causing rebellion against God, that he will ascend above the heights on the clouds and he will make myself the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. When we're talking about Satan, especially here in Genesis chapter 3, I think we have to understand that he once held a position with God. But he was motivated to become like God. And that caused him to lead a rebellion against God. Here in the garden, he's taken on the form of a serpent. He speaks to Eve and he speaks to Adam and he deceives them. That doesn't, the trickery used here doesn't take away Adam and Eve's fault 
and disobeying God's commands that he had given to them. But we can see his attitude of rebellion. Let's rebel here, and then let's cause rebellion here. When did Satan fall? When did he betray God? I can't tell you for certain, but I can tell you that it happened sometime between Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when all things were good, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where we first find the serpent more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So who are we talking about? This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is speaking to Satan, but we're not done asking the question, who are we talking about? Because they're talking about some specific people. God is referring to Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And so these are the two groups of people that we really have to understand if we're going to have any sense of what's taking place here in Genesis 3.15. Who is Satan's offspring and who is the woman's offspring? This isn't as difficult to understand as you might think. John, when writing 1 John to the different churches in the Asia Minor area, writes that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So then, in understanding that, all of creation that does not exist in Christ, that has not confessed, that has not believed, that has not turned to a Savior as the only hope of salvation, is the offspring of Satan being referenced here. That means that everyone and anyone who's not saved is in this offspring of Satan. That means everyone that is here that's been saved before they were saved was inside of this camp, the offspring of Satan. The Bible identifies who the saved are as the children in Jesus belonging to the offspring of the woman. And this can be somewhat confusing to understand that Paul, when writing to Rome, includes the saved in the fulfillment of what God has said. If you take a moment, just look at Romans 16, verse 20. Paul actually makes it really clear, alluding to this passage here in Genesis chapter 3, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's Romans 16, verse 20. And if it's not included in the cross-references in your Bible in Genesis 3.15, you might just write it in there. That's an important one. Because what it makes plain is that when Christians become saved, they are no longer considered children of the devil, but now they are considered children of God. They're in Christ. In fact, we talked a lot about this over the past six weeks in our, the old you sermon series that we just wrapped up. In Christ, we become children of God. So on one hand, the descendants of the woman include the saved, even those of us here this morning. We are the feet that are bruising Satan's head. 
Pay attention to the text, though, because God refers not just to a group or a conglomerate or some sort of congregation, but he refers to an individual. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and the offspring and between your offspring and her offspring. Watch this. He, an individual, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These are singular pronouns, and so they're, they're referring to an individual. This is for the sake of clarity. I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler. God's talking about Jesus. I don't know if you caught that this morning. He's talking about Jesus. So what's the fulfillment of this look like? If you're following along, we have God speaking to Satan about his children, who are all of us who are in sin, and those of us who are in Christ. That an individual will bruise Satan's head and that Satan will bruise this individual's heel. This might be the most important understanding that we can leave here with this morning. To understand how Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. First, it is ongoing as the righteous in this world live in enmity against the unrighteous. I don't know if you guys realize this, but there are people in this world that are not godly. There's not a lot of them. Every once in a while we come in contact with them. And by nature, these people actually live against the things that the Bible gives us to live for. I, I, I mean, we, we, there's no fixing it. The, the only hope that these people have is redemption. The only hope that these people have is salvation. And while we see them waging war against the things that God stands for, maybe even being contrary to the principles that God has given us to live by, maybe even being increasingly more aggressive to Christ's church, unknowing of their own motivations, we can see clearly it's because they are children of the devil. Some of them might be here this morning. You might not even know how wretched you are. But believe it or not, most of the things that happen in this world aren't new. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that. Nothing, in the, nothing is new under the sun. It's been taking place since Genesis 3.15 that those who are not in Christ stand against him. That's one way that we can understand the fulfillment of this. Fortunately, maybe unfortunately, that's still going on. Second, it is in what would come from God taking on flesh and being born of a virgin on Christmas Day. Jesus lived a life that was without sin. He did not inherit sin from his father because he had no earthly father. He lived in the same corrupted world that we live in. He was completely innocent and without sin. And when he was charged and put to death through the Roman crucifixion, the death of his bruise, or the death, is the bruise upon his heel written about all the way in the account of Genesis. He died. His heel was bruised. That's not all Genesis 3.15 promises. The serpent's head 
I like how Paul says it better, was crushed. Jesus didn't die forever. His body was resurrected from the grave. And the significance of this is that Jesus, being a perfect substitution for death, that everyone who is outside of Christ as a child of the devil, everyone who deserves death as a just consequence for their life, Jesus conquers that death once and for all. He conquers evil forever. In fact, as a Christian becomes more mature in their spiritual faith, you actually see a stronger resistance to sin in their life. And that power is not coming from them, but it comes from the one who's inside of them. I want to pay attention to the different parts of the body that are mentioned in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head. This individual offspring of Eve is going to bruise Satan's head. That's a critical blow. I, I don't know if you've played any video games, but a headshot is a pretty sure thing unless you're playing Halo where they have those weird shields. It's done. And you shall bruise his heel. Unless you're Achilles. Hayden's here to testify this morning. You can get by with a limp. The different parts of the body imply a victory, an ultimate conquering. The heel implies that the serpent did not have victory, but was able to cause a temporary sting. Jesus died. For three days he was dead. His body lay in a grave. But he crushes the head. He has ultimate victory in conquering Satan. Is that not amazing? I mean, we think about this one big story that's taking place and it's unfolding. And, and it's easy to look at what's taking place at the beginning of Genesis when God creates the world. And to let this stand aside and be completely separate from what God is doing in Luke chapter 2. Or what he's doing in Luke 25, or Matthew 25, uh, when he gives us the Great Commission, or, or what's, what's taking place in Acts as the early church begins to take shape and form, or what's taking place today because the story hasn't ended. One big story. And I can't emphasize enough, this isn't a chess game. These aren't moves that are being made. There's no tactics here, but this is God's plan. And you're a part of it as much as Eve is a part of it or as much as, as, as everything else that is taking place here is a part of it. We celebrate Christmas. I mean, we think about what God has sacrificed for us. Even on Christmas Day, I mean, we talk about the sacrifice of the cross a lot, but think about it for a moment. What has God done in sacrificing the glories of heaven to come and take on the form of an infant child? To give up all the glories of the kingdom of heaven. To come and lay in a manger. One plan for the beginning of time unfolding and being pointed to even as far back as Genesis 3.15. This is remarkable. So we have to ask, 
What are the implications of this? Let me back up. First, we would be able to see plainly that the world that we live in and the position that we are in in this world, well, it requires redemption. I pray that we wouldn't be surprised by a world that is increasingly more aggressive and confrontational towards the truth of the gospel. And that we would have hearts that are not just contemptuous or righteously indignant towards the depravity that we see in this world, but are compassionate and hopeful at the same time, that in the same way that as God saved us, that He has provided a sacrifice for all those who would repent and turn towards Jesus. Second, that we would see the victory of Jesus' resurrection. For generations... Man and woman have been looking forward to the day of God's promise that was established in Genesis 3.15. If you keep reading the Bible from this point, you can almost, there's a sense of eagerness and longing as Adam and Eve have their children, Cain and Abel. Is one of these going to be the one that's going to conquer Satan? Is one of these going to be the one that's going to crush his head? Oh, and we can see the blow that it takes. Cain kills Abel. He's probably not the righteous one. He's obviously a child of the devil. Cain's out. And then Seth's born. And we can keep going. And there's King, well, there's Abraham. And then there's King David. All the way to the Virgin Mary. Giving birth to Emmanuel. I can see the pain and longing in all of this. God's promises may not happen when we want them to, but they will happen with no doubt. Let us be reminded that the promises of God that we hope for, that we look forward to in the future, we may not be here to see them come to fruition but they will come to fruition. Let's set aside all doubt. Let us rest our confidence in the promises that have already been fulfilled. I hope you're looking forward to this sermon series. It is unconventional. And I'm very, very excited about it being unconventional because, you know, you can only preach a sermon so many times. And the truth is, you can only hear a sermon so many times. So for all of you who have already heard a traditional Christmas sermon, I pray that you go on this journey with us as we look at, look at this from a different perspective. As we look at the Christmas story unfolding in one big story from the beginning of time. As God's one big plan that has never been altered, never needed adjustments, contains no mitigation, but is being fulfilled even today. And let me just ask, if you're here with us this morning and you have questions and you want to understand this one big story more clearly, or you want to be able to read it and understand it for yourself. I've printed off 10 copies of a book this morning 
that give you four steps to reading the Bible on your own. Talked about this a couple Sundays ago. I don't know if you realize this, but December is actually the worst time of the year for people's spiritual health. Everything gets so busy. There's so many memories that come up. And while it should be a time of spiritual high because we're celebrating Christmas, the fulfillment of so many of these promises and everything that we have to celebrate, and we're thinking about the glories of heaven that God exchanged so that we could be in heaven with Him, everyone gets so busy and they hide behind their smiles and they don't let anyone know that they're actually suffering, that they're not feeding themselves God's word, the way that they're supposed to be feeding him. And uh, so this invitation is that if you haven't taken the time to make your Bible study a priority, that you'd start in December doing that for yourself. And if you need help on that journey, I'm not asking you to go figure this out on your own. The book that I've printed, I think will be a great resource to get you started. My cell phone doesn't turn off. I might be bad at answering text messages, and I don't always answer calls the first time, but I am better at answering phone calls. But I'm very good at returning phone calls. And I want to be there to help you. Let's pray, and we'll sing a song of invitation. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the redemption that you've given us. God, I pray that you would be with us this Christmas season as we get ready to make plans to see family and uh, everything else that comes with this time of year. God, that you would protect us, that you would hold us close to you and that you would keep us in, our, in your, your word. God, I pray that you would help us to celebrate being a part of your plan that was established at the beginning of time. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to your word this morning in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us?